Today we're going to look at Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, and we're talking about choosing leaders. As uh, Brittany mentioned, it's the passage where Jesus chooses 12 men out of a broader group of disciples, and I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned. I'm going to stop at a few points and interject some stuff that I think will be helpful for you. Then after that, um, there's some research and study I did this week into the interconnections of the disciples and apostles, which kind of fascinates me, just getting behind why Jesus maybe chose them and how he wanted to use them. And some of you will love that, and you'll go home and you'll dig deeper, and others of you will be like, get to the point, come on. Take whatever is useful for you. There's an outline in the bulletin if you want to take notes. Let's uh, look at what Luke writes for us in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. Luke says, One day, soon afterwards, Jesus went up to a mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. At daybreak, he called together all of his disciples and chose 12 of them to be apostles. And here are their names. Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, Peter's brother, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, also known as the sons of thunder, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, James the lesser, Simon, who was also called the zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. Now, the the next part of our passage, verses 17 to 19, most scholars believe is recorded in Matthew chapter 5, 1 and 2, and it's actually the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which is helpful to know. And that's That makes a lot of sense because next week our passage, verse 20 and following, is really a condensed, shortened version of that Sermon on the Mount that's found in three chapters in Matthew. And uh, so verse 17 says, When they came down from the mountain, the disciples stood with Jesus on a large level area, surrounded by many of his followers and by the crowds. And there were people from all over Judea and from Jerusalem and from as far north as the seacoasts of Tyre and Sidon. I wanted to show you a picture of this area when I was in Israel a few years ago. This is the traditional site that they believe to be the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount. It's uh, right above the Sea of Galilee, and I believe Capernaum is right down below. But you can tell this is kind of a slow, gradually rising hill. And then that middle area is a big flat area where thousands of people could have been. And that's really one of the only areas like that around the lake. So they think that's the site that's being spoken of here. Well, verse 18 says, They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those troubled by evil spirits were healed. And everyone tried to touch him because healing power went out from him. And he healed everyone. The text tells us that this crowd, even at this early point in his ministry, was coming from all over the place. Tyre and Sidon were about 40 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Matthew adds that some of the crowd came from Galilee and from Decapolis. Decapolis literally means the ten cities. It was uh, ten cities that surrounded the Galilee region there. Um, He also tells us that there were some beyond the Jordan that came. And then Mark chapter 3 informs us that there were even people that came from the region of Idumea. Idumea was about 80 miles south of of Galilee. So people were coming from all over the place, and you get this picture of just these masses swarming around Jesus. And we read this, but we kind of don't fully take it in. Imagine if you're Jesus, and you have just crowds and crowds of people, and everyone wanted to touch him, because healing power was coming from him, and healing them of their diseases, and 
casting out demons and so forth. And so one of the other gospel writers tells us that Jesus actually had some of the disciples make a boat ready so he could stand to the boat and have some relief from the crowds if he needed. But you never get even a hint that Jesus is frustrated by the crowds or irritated by them. The disciples many times are like, send them away, get them out of here. You know, we're tired, we're hungry, it's enough. But Jesus is modeling for these guys what it means to do ministry. In the sermon preview email that I sent out this week, I I was just reflecting on the fact that our passage is only eight short verses today, but it's really packed full of practical insights and transferable principles about choosing leaders that can help us as we're trying to appoint leadership teams or trusted inner circles. Um, And one of the first questions that people ask when they come to this passage is, why 12? Why did he choose 12 people? And the common answer to that is that, well, there were 12 tribes of Israel. And as Jesus was starting this new kingdom and this new family of God, he wanted to bring together Gentiles and Jews. And, and one of the answers that Luke gives later on, if you want to reference, reference this and look it up later, is Luke twenty two twenty nine to 30 says that Jesus announced to his disciples that one day they would sit on thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So what a powerful decision and choice he, he had to make to appoint men who would not only carry out the ministry that he gave them, but that would really set up the future church and kingdom ministry, which is kind of overwhelming to think. Well, the names of the apostles are recorded for us in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, and Mark 3, 16 to 19, and then in Acts chapter 1, verse 13. And in all those lists, Peter is mentioned first, and Judas is mentioned last. The only time Judas isn't mentioned is in Acts, because by that point he had defected, he was no longer following the Lord, he had in fact taken his life after he had betrayed Jesus and felt remorse, and so he's left out of the list. But Peter's always first, and Judas is always last. And I did some research this week because it fascinates me to try and figure out why did Jesus choose this motley crew of guys, you know? They didn't seem to be educated or to have any special training or any notoriety and you know, what were the connections? And we know that at least two sets of guys were brothers. We know that Peter and Andrew were brothers, and then James and John, the sons of Zebedee. So there's two sets of brothers there. But then I thought, you know, were there any connections beyond that? And in verse 15, we're told that one of the disciples was James, the son of Alphaeus. And when I read that this week, for the first time, I don't know why I never caught this, but I was thinking about when we, when we studied Matthew and how when Matthew came to Jesus, it, his name was recorded in, I think it was Mark chapter 2, as Levi, the son of Alphaeus. And it turns out these guys are brothers. So James, the son of Alphaeus, and Matthew or Levi, the son of Alphaeus, are brothers. And then beyond that, um, I was... Uh, studying this week and found out that church tradition says that Judas, son of James, in verse 16 of our text, who was known as Thaddeus in the other gospels, so Matthew and Mark, he's called Thaddeus. Here in Luke, he's called Judas, son of James. He was identified as the son of Clopas and Mary. And that may make no sense to you, but let me give you the short version. Clopas and Mary are the 
two disciples that I believe are the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, where Jesus, after he's resurrected, appears to them and walks with them. And one of the guys is, is identified as Clopas, and scholars have always wondered, who was the other one? I believe it was his wife. And Clopas, according to church tradition, is Joseph's brother, so Jesus' uncle. And there's a verse in John 19, 25, that says that one of the women at the foot of the cross was Mary, the sister of Mary, our Lord's mother. And scholars have often thought, well, why would a family name two daughters the same name? But it turns out in Greek that sister in Greek can also refer to sister-in-law. So we believe that Clopas and Mary were Jesus' uncle and aunt, and that possibly these three disciples were their sons. So these would have been Jesus' cousins. So speculation, not something to die over, but it, it helps you understand maybe a little bit more of the dynamics of the 12 disciples and the interrelation of them. In terms of occupations or professions, we know that James and John uh, were fishermen. We also know that Peter and Andrew were fishermen. We know that Matthew was a tax collector. Um, possibly, you know, this relation between James and Judas uh, being his brothers. Or it could be that um, Judas was also the half-brother of Jesus, because we read those verses in Matthew and Mark that where the, the leaders ask, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters with us? And so it could be that the Judas here is the half-brother of Jesus who wrote the epistle of James. We don't know, but this is some of the things, uh, occupations that they held. Um, Judas Iscariot, we think maybe he was an accountant or a bookkeeper. We know that he was stealing from the treasury uh, the money that the apostles would collect. He's the one that when the woman anointed Jesus' feet, he took issue with that and said, you know, why wasn't this costly perfume sold and the money donated to the poor when everybody knew that he didn't care about the poor, he just wanted more money for himself. So... We'll get into some of that today about, you know, why did Jesus choose him? Simon the Zealot, we think he was a political figure um, involved in the political realm somehow. And then Nathaniel, you may be wondering about him. We think he's the same guy as Bartholomew. In, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we read about Bartholomew. And then in John is the only place we read about Nathaniel, and we think they're one and the same. And then one other point is that Nathaniel, Nathaniel and Thomas, in John 21, after Jesus is resurrected, remember, uh, they go back to fishing, and Jesus is cooking fish on the seashore, and Nathaniel and Thomas are with that group of fishermen, so maybe they're fishermen as well. But all of this is going to play into why I think Jesus chose these men and uh, how he chose to use them. But I think there's three uh, leadership principles that kind of emerge from our text today that can guide us as we're looking to appoint leaders. And the first thing that I want to suggest to you is the indispensability of prayer. The indispensability of prayer. Not just the importance of prayer, but the indispensability of it. The text says that Jesus spent all night in prayer before he made this important decision of choosing these guys. And you think, this is, this is God in human flesh, and he's modeling for us the indispensability of prayer. And I don't think he did it out of obligation or respect to his heavenly Father. I think he did it 
in sheer dependency, as he was depending and drawing from the Father knowledge and wisdom. There's a verse in John chapter 6 that says that Jesus knew from the very beginning that Judas would betray him. He knew everything about Judas from the beginning. So it's not like Jesus chose Judas and then was later surprised that he was, you know, betrayed him and was a thief and all these things. Jesus knew from the very beginning. So perhaps that was one of the things that he struggled over as he was seeking the Lord's counsel and wisdom about appointing 12 leaders. You know, like, seriously, God? Judas? Why Judas? The guy's going to rob us blind. He's going to betray me and and God the Father is saying, you know what? It's part of the plan. Choose him. You know? So Jesus was modeling that, that wisdom and knowledge that he drew from the, the Heavenly Father and that dependency upon him. Some of you may recall a uh, newscaster by the name of Charles Kuralt. He uh, produced a number of fascinating TV stories about his travels across America. And he wrote a book called On the Road with Charles Kuralt. And he, he talks in the book about this one time that he and his crew went to this place in, in, in Wisconsin, and there was this Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration that had been praying for a hundred years without interruption. Day and night for a hundred years, there were two sisters that would alternate. I don't know how many sisters there were all together, but there was always two sisters on their knees before the Lord interceding for the world for things like, uh, you know, ending sickness and hunger and an end to social injustice and for wisdom in high places and for their city and their country and their friends and their enemies, day and night without interruption for a hundred years. And, you know, here, here's a secular newscaster and his crew just fascinated by the dedication of these women. And we see examples of a prayer in, in the church and in our world, but you know, I'm here to say I have never spent all night in prayer. I don't know if anyone else has, but, you know, that's, that's quite a feat. And chances are, if you've ever prayed all night or for an extended period, most likely it came because of a crisis or something that you were dealing with that drove you to your knees. And unfortunately, it seems to be those crisis moments that, that cause us to really seek the Lord in prayer. All, all too often, we... We almost act like, well, if all else fails, then I'll pray, you know. When I reach the end of my own resources, my own strength, then I'll try praying. And we, we miss the beauty of tapping into God's, God's resources through prayer. And Jesus models that so beautifully for us. I think the other picture that we have in Scripture of Jesus spending um, intense time in prayer is the Garden of Gethsemane, you know. Um, Jesus prayed repeatedly, Lord, if at all possible, let this cup pass from me. May I not have to go through the suffering of the cross. And you can either look at Gethsemane as a huge failure, like Jesus didn't get what he prayed for, or you can see it as a huge success. And I, I look at it as a huge success because I think the victory was won in the garden long before Jesus ever was tortured or on the cross. Because the whole point was, if Jesus had sinned at any point in his torture or in his trial, he would have ceased being God, because he would have been sinful, and he would no longer have been the sinless sacrifice. And so he found strength, and he found resolve, and he found purpose in that garden through prayer. And I think that that's 
part of the answer for us about what prayer is all about. Too often we treat prayer like, God, I've made this decision, please bless it. You know, please help everything to work out. And instead, I don't think prayer is so much about praying that God would grant certain things or do such and such for us, but prayer is really about asking God to give us his heart and his mind and his strength and his um, wisdom to act as he would act. And that's what I see Jesus modeling for us, and I think there's a lot for us to learn through that. The first time in my life that I probably came close to spending the whole night in prayer was the story that I've told you many times of when my mom was uh, diagnosed with diabetes. We were up at Hume Lake, again, place that Craig referenced, and this was back when I was in high school, so it was back in the 1700s, and uh, we, uh, my mom had super high blood pressure, like skyrocketed, like 250 over 150, and they thought she was dying, and my dad rushed her down the hill, and my brothers and I were stuck in a cabin with no telephone, and this was before cell phones, and we thought my mom was going to die. And, you know, we were praying for God to save her. And uh, my brothers are seven, eight years younger than me, so pretty much in high school, they were kind of worthless to me because they were just kind of clowning around and not aware of the gravity of the situation. And I prayed most of the night, um, but then fell asleep when my dad came back early morning and let us know that she had been diagnosed with diabetes and put on medicine and everything was okay. But that was probably the first time where a crisis drove me to my knees for an extended period of prayer. Probably the next significant time that I could remember is when my oldest daughter was born. And, you know, Denise, my wife, had toxemia, and her life was in danger, and Amanda's life was in danger, and Amanda was born almost eight weeks premature back in 1990, which was significant at Huntington Memorial Hospital in Pasadena. I was trying to finish seminary, and Denise was kept in the hospital for a little bit longer because of the seriousness of everything. And I remember going home alone and just praying prolonged periods of time that God would spare my daughter's life, that he'd keep Denise okay. And, you know, I I learned that dependency of prayer. And I think that's modeled so beautifully for us here, the indispensability of prayer. The second thing that I see in our passage that really teaches us about leadership is the importance of relationship, the importance of relationship. And I want to I read to you a passage out of Mark chapter 3. It's called a parallel passage to our passage because it tells the same story from Mark's perspective. Mark writes in chapter 3, verse 7 of his gospel, Jesus went out to the lake with his disciples, and a large crowd followed him. And they came from all over Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, from the east of the Jordan River and even as far north as Tyre and Sidon. And the news about his miracles had spread far and wide, and vast numbers of people came to see him. Jesus instructed his disciples to have a boat ready so the crowd would not crush him. I mean, you can see that. They're swarming around him. They all want to touch him. He had healed many people that day, so the sick people eagerly pushed forward to touch him. And whenever those possessed by evil spirits caught sight of him, the spirits would throw them to the ground in front of him, shrieking, you are the son of God. But Jesus sternly commanded the spirits not to reveal who he was. So that's the backdrop to our passage. That's what's going on before Jesus chooses leaders. 
And I, as I said, I think any of us would be like, okay, I'm done with ministry. Like if one more person touches me, I think I'm going to lose it. You know, like back off. You know, it's ridiculous. I got to get in a boat just to have some, some separation. But Jesus is modeling for his disciples what ministry is all about. And right after that, in Mark chapter 3, the very next verses say this. And Jesus went up on the mountain and summoned those who he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, and listen to this beautiful purpose of why. He appointed 12 so that they would be with him, and that they, he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And I think we read over that and kind of minimize that, but Jesus primarily chose people that he wanted to be with and that he wanted to be with, that he wanted to be in relationship with for the next three years. I think sometimes we think that because he was God, that wasn't an important consideration, like he just chose them for spiritual reasons. But these are people that Jesus knew would have value for him relationally in the next three years, people that he would enjoy hanging out with and that would support him and, and that would just add to what his human needs were on that level. And also so he could send them out. And it kind of draws to mind what John talks about in John 15 about abiding, that abiding relationship with God. That's exactly what these disciples did as they ministered and lived with him and they learned to draw from, from his wisdom and his knowledge. And I think through their experience with Jesus, they became living letters. They, they were taking in all that was happening so that later they could write these books under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we have recorded for us and we have the gospel record today. But Jesus chose them and a broader group of people to be disciples. And that word in the original language just means to be a follower. It means to be a, an understudy or to sit at the feet of. And we know that Jesus had probably hundreds of disciples. And then from those disciples, he also called apostles. An apostle means those who were sent out. And so the 12 that he chose, the text tells us that he chose not only to be with him, but so that he could send them out with authority to cast out demons and to teach and to preach. They were going to be ambassadors. And so disciples, disciples are followers but apostles are those sent out as messengers with delegated authority. And these are just ordinary guys. You know, they weren't wealthy, they weren't famous, they weren't particularly influential, they seemed to have no special education or training, but Jesus used them to build the kingdom of God. And they were also pretty diverse. They had very different backgrounds. An example of that is Matthew the tax collector, who was seen as a traitor to the Jews, as we talked about, because he had aligned himself with the Romans and really took advantage of his own people to collect exorbitant taxes. And then another disciple, like Simon the Zealot, who was this fanatical nationalist. And these, these zealots were known for literally assassinating anybody who was in any way associated with the Romans. So how these two even lived together for three years as Jesus' disciples is a testimony to, to Christ's leadership and the fact that they were able to get along. So Jesus brought people of tremendously diverse backgrounds together for the common purpose 
of the kingdom. And it illustrates for us that the essence of relationship is abiding and representing, following and then being sent out. You know, I was thinking about church in our modern day, and unfortunately, I think church has become the place that people go once, in a, once a week and expect great things of God. Like, let's all gather together once a week and watch God do amazing things. And, you know, hopefully there's a pastor who's dynamic and charismatic and a staff that's equally so, and we can just draw in the people and amazing things will happen. But as I look at Scripture, church is more about God doing things in us and through us throughout the week, and then on Sunday we gather together and celebrate what he's doing. Not through the pastor, not through the staff, but through all of us as the people of God. And it begs that question, are we merely disciples who follow the Lord, or are we also apostles, those who are sent out with the message of the gospel to reach others? And then on Sunday we come together, not for a show, not to be entertained, not to you know, follow some charismatic person, but to celebrate what God has been doing through all of our lives. That's how I read about church in the Bible, and that's what I think we need to get back to. The goal is to bring people into relationship with Jesus. That's what our mission says out in the lobby, inviting people to follow Jesus as we impact our community and world. It's not inviting people to follow us or just to come to church or at CBC, but it's inviting them to start a relationship with God through Jesus and then celebrating what he, what he does. The third thing, the last thing, is what I call the value of reach, R-E-A-C-H, the value of reach. As I said, the disciples weren't chosen because of their educational background, their religious training or knowledge, some celebrity status that they had, or their financial success. I believe they were chosen because of their connectedness with others. And we see an example of that in Matthew. The minute Matthew found the Lord, he, he hosted a party at his house, and he invited all of his friends and Jesus so they could connect. He was deeply connected with others. I think much more so than the religious leaders of the day. They weren't connected with anybody but themselves. Andrew in John chapter 1, the minute he finds Jesus, he goes and gets Peter, his brother. Philip, the minute he finds the Lord, runs and gets Nathaniel. And then later in John chapter 12, there's a bunch of Greeks who want to learn more about Jesus, and they come to Philip. And so the disciples represented connectedness. Even though they weren't anybody special, I think they had deep relationships. And Jesus knew that from those relationships, they would be able to draw many into the kingdom. I was reading a book this week by a guy named uh, Mark Batterson. He's a, he's a pastor in D.C. And he writes about this guy named Lauren Whitfield, and in 1983, he published an article about the domino chain reaction. And he said, you can picture it in your mind, can't you? You knock over a domino, and it sets off a chain reaction that can knock down hundreds of other dominoes in a matter of seconds. But the unique significance of Whitfield's research was discovering that a domino is capable of knocking over another domino that is one and a half times its size. 
So a two-inch domino can topple a three-inch domino. A three-inch domino can topple a four-and-a-half-inch domino. And on and on and on. You get the picture. And by the time you get to the 18th domino, you could knock over the Leaning Tower of Pisa, which, as he said, of course, is already leaning, so that's not fair. He says the 23rd domino could knock over the Eiffel Tower. And by the time you get to the 29th domino, you could take down the entire Uh, the Empire State Building. He goes on to say that in the realm of mathematics, there are two types of progression. There's linear progression and geometric progression. Linear progression is 2 plus 2 equals 4. Geometric progression is compound doubling. 2 times 2 equals 4. And if you take 30 linear steps, you're 90 feet from where you started. But if you take 30 geometric steps... You've circled the earth 26 times. He goes on to say, faith isn't linear, it's geometric. Every decision we make, every step of faith we take has a chain reaction. And those chain reactions set off a thousand chain reactions that we aren't even aware of. Things that we won't see or appreciate until one day when we're with the Lord. And he points those out to us. But I thought, you know, that captures exactly what it means, this, this idea of reach, that God wants to use us to reach others. I came up with an acronym this week that, in my own mind, helped me understand this, and I'll give it to you for what it's worth, but I see reach as relationships each apostle could harvest. Relationships that each apostle could harvest. In, in secular leadership, maybe you've heard of the principle that we are to lead with our strength and staff to our weakness. And, and the point of that is that an effective and successful team is not a bunch of people that are exactly like you. But hopefully they're people with different gifts and abilities and background, and they all have a, a different reach for connecting with other people. And obviously Jesus didn't have any weaknesses that he needed to draw other people alongside of him. But I think he chose this team because he knew the connectedness that they had with diverse backgrounds of people and how they could be brought into the kingdom through the Holy Spirit. And God wants to use us as well. I want to close today with a, a, a few verses from 1 Corinthians 1. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, the Apostle Paul reminds us of this. He says, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things that the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. I think that so beautifully sums up Jesus choosing the disciples. There was nothing tangible on the surface that anybody could point to. If for anything, Jesus chose them so he could say, look how I can change the world and history through ordinary people. And the message for you and I is that God is in the business of using ordinary people that don't have particular gifts or talents. And if some of you have shied away from leadership because you think, well, there's This is your text. This is all of our text. 
I would not be in the ministry today because of any giftedness. I mean, I, I went into the ministry kicking and screaming because I don't have those gifts and abilities. I never wanted to be a public speaker. I wanted to be a quiet person in the corner. And I ended up being drawn into ministry because of the call. And, and God wants to use each and every one of us. And I long for the day when church becomes just this huge celebration of what he's doing through each and every one of us as we're sent out in his name. Not merely as disciples who follow him, but as those who are sent out to reap the harvest. Let's pray.